So now we come to the death of Saul, the death that Samuel had told him was going to happen because of his sins against God. And now all those judgments that he had been racking up throughout his entire life that have been delayed for the sake of God using Saul as a judgment against Israel for wanting a king like all the other nations and giving them a king like all the other nations, all those judgments that have been delayed are now going to come today on the battlefield, as Samuel said when he was conjured up. So chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from the Philistines, and many of them fell dead on Mount Gaboa. And the Philistines stayed right on the heels of Saul and his sons, and they struck down Saul's sons, Jonathan, Abinadad, and Malkishu. And Saul himself was in the thick of the battle, and the archers spotted him and wounded him severely. So this battle is not going well for Israel. The Philistines are overpowering them, and the Israelites are leaving. And this battle is taking place on Mount Gaboa. And Mount Gaboa is located in this Jezreel region, this yellow region that's kind of peninsula itself, into the Israelite territory that is purple. And it's all the way north. And one of the things that the narrator is showing you here is the narrators made the point all throughout David on the run that he will not kill Saul because God has not given permission. Twice, David has had the ability to kill Saul. And twice he did not do it because David knew that he did not have the right to kill Saul because God had not given him permission to do so. And Saul was still the anointed king of God, put there by God for a reason. The narrator's shown that very clearly. So now this is when Saul is going to die. And what the narrator's showing you now is by the fact that Saul's all the way up in the north in Mount Gilboa and all the Israelites and all the Philistines who are fighting this battle with Saul and his sons are all up there in the north. David's all the way down in Ziklag in the south, miles away. He is nowhere even close to Saul to kill him. Nobody can accuse David of, oh, that random arrow that killed Saul actually came from David. No, you just didn't see it like I did. Or David has, uh, commanded somebody to go chase down Saul in the battle and kill him. How convenient. There are many, many witnesses down in the south that can testify that David is there. There are many people in the north that have never seen David up there. David is so far away from the north, so far away from Saul. And not only that, there's no way that David would even be trying to kill Saul up there because David is already in distress on his own with his whole family being kidnapped, his village being burned down, and he's dealing with all that. And the narrator's showing that David truly is innocent of killing Saul, and Saul is truly not dying by his hands. But now Saul and his sons are dying. All of his sons that are on the battlefield with him are dead. Now this isn't all of his sons. We'll learn about another one later. But all the sons that are with him on the battlefield are dead. And the sad part of this is Jonathan is also one of them. Remember, Jonathan is like one of the most godly men in this entire book. And who, of all people, would probably make a great king. And yet he won't be able to become king because of the sins of his father. And we know that. If you look at through history, if you look at your own family, if you watch the news, lots of people suffer all the time at the hands of of the sins of their family members or fathers or mothers or all that kind of stuff. And Jonathan is reaping the consequences of this. And Saul is mortally wounded. He is mortally wounded. He's about ready to die. But what he fears is falling into the hands of the Philistines. 
So verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and stab me with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised people will come and stab me and torture me. But his armor bearer refused to do it because he was very afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and he died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men died together that day. Now Saul is afraid of falling into the hands of the Philistines. Not only is he afraid of falling into their hands because he doesn't want them to get credit for killing him and then being able to use it as a bragging right, but he's also afraid of this because he's afraid of what they'll do to him. He's wounded. He'll be captured. They might torture him, mutilate him. They'll turn him into the Joker. And we've seen that already, where Agag was turned in the beginning of Judges was turned to the Joker and mutilated and mistreated. And then Samson was turned into the Joker at the end of Judges and mutilated and mistreated. And he's afraid of it happening to him. He doesn't want to do that. Now his armor bearer is afraid to do it because he cares about Saul. But Saul then takes him out of his own hands and kills himself. This is making a couple points here. First, the very thing that Saul feared his entire life was that David was conspiring against him and David was going to try to kill him and take the throne from him. And he even dedicated most of his reign as king to chasing David down and killing him. And even when David made arguments after he could have killed Saul and didn't, and even when David had the chance to kill Saul and didn't do it and even proved it to Saul, and Saul confessed that he believed David and David was a better man for it, he went away. He then changed his mind and went back into the conspiracy theories. He's dedicated his entire life and to this paranoia that he is going to be killed by David and in the end, in the end, kills himself. But there's also a certain sense here that he's still even taking control of his life all the way up to the very end. He is having control of his life and he is taking control and deciding when he is going to die rather than allowing it to play out in a different scenario possibly. Now the other thing that the narrator is putting this here and pointing out is that the God's prophecy did come true. Saul, in fact, died just as God said that this would happen. And this brings an end to the error. The thing you must remember, though, is the narrator said that Saul killed himself. And this is extremely important because the narrator is the voice of God and what he says is the truth. And this is important because of what's going to happen in the next chapter of Second Samuel. And you need to understand the narrator told you that Saul killed himself so that you can correctly interpret what's happened in the next chapter when we get to a man who reports the death of Saul to David. When the men of Israel, verse 7, who were in the valley across the Jordan, saw the men of Israel and had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled, and the Philistines came in and occupied them. Now that Saul is dead... All these people who followed Saul and believed that he would rescue them, that he was the king that would deliver them from their enemies. Now, at the end of his life, he has failed miserably. Now, this is the other thing that the narrator is emphasizing, is that this is the very person that all of Israel believed would deliver them from the hands of their enemies. This is the very reason they wanted a king like all the other nations, that he would deliver them from the Philistines. And now at the end of his life, he's dying on a hill. 
He has really gained no territory for Israel and not really stopped the Philistines. The Philistines overwhelmed them. And now that their leader, who would save them from the hand of the Philistines, is dead, they're now afraid and they're fleeing all their cities close to the border. And the Philistines are moving deeper into Israelite territory as a result of that. Saul had accomplished nothing throughout his reign. Israel's right back where they were before they had a king. In fact, they're worse off because Samuel had accomplished a lot for them, and all of that has been lost as well. Here's how battle, the aftermath of war works. We've already talked about the fact that war is hell, and really hellish in the ancient world. But the aftermath of war works like this. In the ancient, today in America, America is incredibly committed to getting all the bodies of fallen soldiers and bringing them back to America for their loved ones to be buried. Now, we don't always get them back, but America tries very hard to get as many soldiers, no one left behind, and bring them back. But that's not how it works in the ancient world. And the ancient world is up to the families to go out to the battlefields and get the bodies. Now, what immediately begins to happen after battle is why everybody is off to war, all the loved ones, the family members are at home. And they have no idea what's going on in the battlefield. They don't know who's dying and who's surviving and who's winning and who's losing. You have all these people who are waiting for their husbands, their sons, their fathers, their brothers to return home. And they're just waiting and waiting. Eventually, messengers come back, and the messengers report a victory or a loss of their, their nation, their people group. And even if they are the victors, that doesn't mean that everybody survived the battle. And so the messengers come back and report this. Now you can begin to expect people to return. Eventually, a little bit later, people start coming back. The messengers are always ahead of the people who come back. And eventually, the soldiers begin to come back. And they're coming back on this day and a few more on this day and this day. And you're constantly looking for your brother or your father or your son or your husband. And so you wait and wait and wait. And eventually you notice that everybody's come back, lots of people come back, and then the day goes by and nobody else has returned and nobody else has returned, and you realize your loved one has not returned. Now, that means that you have to go out to the battlefield, however far away it is, and you have to find the body of your loved one and bring it back. Now, while you've been doing all that waiting, the first thing that's happened on the battlefield after the victory is over with is that the victors of the battle and poor people or scavengers who don't have respect for the dead, they're out in the fields immediately scavenging the body. They're going through all the bodies and they're looking for money and jewelry. They're looking for clothes that are still intact. And they're stripping the boots off of the soldiers, their swords, their shields, all that kind of stuff. Anything that is valuable, that's the reward for winning the battle, one of the rewards. And this is happening very quickly because this is every man for himself grabbing as quickly as you can before somebody else does. And so that happens. That once all that activity is done, all these bodies are abandoned. Mutilated bodies, hacked up bodies from swords, stripped down some of them, and then the carnivores come in. The animals in the woods, the birds, they come in and they start feeding on the bodies. By the time you get there as a family member, you get there and there's this huge field of all these dead bodies and you and a whole bunch of other random people that are, were left behind in war, the loved ones, are out there looking through the bodies. And you have to turn, overturn some of the, roll some of the bodies over. 
You have to roll some of the bodies over to see their faces. You may not recognize some of them. And you're, they're half eaten, they're hacked up, they're bloody, they're naked. If you do find your loved one, they may not be wearing their wedding rings anymore. Some of their clothes might be missing, sword shields. And then you have to bring them back and you have to prepare them for, wash them up and prepare them for burial. And if you're lucky, you'll find them at the very beginning rather than the very end. And so that's what happens after the battle. And that's exactly what verse 8 begins to explain. And he the next day, when the Philistines came to strip loot from the corpses, they discovered Saul and his three sons lying dead on Mount Gaboa. They cut off Saul's head and stripped him of his armor, and they sent messengers to announce the news to the temple of their idols and among their people throughout the surrounding land of the Philistines. They placed Saul's armor in the temple of the Asherahs and hung his corpse on the city wall of Beth Shan. So the Philistines respond. And they come, the Philistines come out to strip the dead and loot the bodies. And they come and they discover Saul's body and his sons. And they do what Philistines do. They take the bodies of Saul and his sons. We'll be told in the next paragraph that this also includes the sons. And they cut off the heads of all of Saul and his sons. And they take them all the way to Bethshan up here in the north, right here close to this Israelite border. And they nail their bodies and their heads to the wall as a trophy to their gods for defeating the great king of Israel. They completely degrade and humiliate and use these bodies as a trophy. Now this is interesting. Because the book of Samuel began with the Philistines capturing the Ark of Yahweh. And Yahweh uses as an opportunity to bring down the Philistines, to flex his power and muscles, to demonstrate that he is the greatest God in all the land. And he devastated the Philistines, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And that book began with that major defeat of God doing something amazing against the Philistines and basically destroying Dagon in his own temple. Now, as a result of this man, who's like all the other nations, who did not act in a kingly kind of way, did not act in a godly way, the book is ending with the great warrior of God, the great anointed king of God, the great king who was supposed to defeat the Philistines. He has now been captured, and he is being celebrated by the Philistines, and they are worshiping and celebrating their gods for that defeat. And basically the point is this king, like all the other nations, has served himself instead of Yahweh. Not only has accomplished nothing for Israel, but he has undone everything that God accomplished against the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant. He has lost all the lands that God gained because of the result of that. He has given a bad testimony to Yahweh and his power. And the Philistines now believe that their gods are actually superior to Yahweh. And that lesson that they learned a long time ago is completely undone because of the actions of Saul. And this is the end of Saul. Verse 11. When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant warriors set out and traveled throughout the night. They took Saul's corpse and the corpses of his sons from the city wall of Bashan, and they went to Jabesh Gilead where they burned them. And they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree of Jabesh and then they fasted for seven days. There's lots of cities that are way closer to Bashan. Lots of Israelite cities are way closer to Bashan than Jabesh Gilead. So why have all the cities 
is Jabesh Gilead, the one who is risking their life to go get Saul's body. And the answer is, this is the city that Saul rescued at the beginning of Samuel. This is the city that Nahash, the Ammonite, came in to attack Jabesh Gilead. And Jabesh Gilead asked to be their servants. And Nahash said, I'll let you be a servant as long as you gouge out your right eye. And Saul came in and rescued them. And they remembered that. And they're rewarding Saul with that by burying his body in a proper way. But not only that, this is also Saul's family on his mother's side. Because Jabesh Gilead was also that city that didn't show up in battle to destroy the Benjamites at the end of Judges. And all the other tribes went to Jabesh Gilead and slaughtered everybody there for not helping them. But then they kidnapped a bunch of women and gave them to the Benjamites in marriage to keep the Benjamites from going extinct. And Saul is a descendant of that. So Saul rescued them when he didn't rescue any other city in Israel because they were family. And now this city is rescuing Saul from the city wall because he's family and he rescued them and they remember that. And that these men were willing to risk their lives to rescue Saul in this kind of way and give him a proper burial because he rescued them. Then imagine what more could have happened in Israel if Saul had done that for lots of other cities in Israel and how things could have been different. And this is the sad note that the only person who thinks to go and rescue Saul and bring him off the wall are the only people that Saul has ever rescued in his entire kingship. But the other thing that's interesting is here is they burned his body first and then they buried his bones. Now, this heat would not be an incredible, intense heat like we have today with cremations where everything gets burned. It would be a heat that would be enough to burn the flesh and the bones would be spared or they pour the, pull the bones out before they're burned. I don't know. But what's interesting is this doesn't really show up anywhere else in the Bible. This is not seen as a good thing in the Bible. The, the Bible very much values the bodies of humans. The body is created by God. God created the material realm. God is going to resurrect the body. All the cultures around them really have no value for the body. And they don't really see the body having a continuation in the afterlife. The Israelites didn't really have a developed sense of afterlife, but they did have a respect for the body and value the body and knew something was going to happen. And so burning, it doesn't really seem that. And, and, and most scholars don't really know if this should be seen as a bad thing or a neutral thing. But it's definitely not a common or wouldn't it be seen as a good thing. And so it might be even in his death, his body is still kind of a violation of the law. Even the way that he's being buried is a violation of the law against God. Now this doesn't mean you shouldn't cremate anybody today. That's not the Bible speaking against cremation. That's bad and you should feel guilty if you did that or not do it at all because that's the law and the law had lots of rules that we're no longer under anymore like we don't have to abstain from eating unclean foods anymore and you don't have to abstain from wearing 50% one fabric and 50% other fabric at the same time. There's lots of laws that we're not under anymore so that's not a commentary of this but it's just a final comment on Saul's life now that is the end of 1 Samuel, but that's not the end of the book of Samuel. Because remember, 1 Samuel is not the end of a book. 1 Samuel is the end of a scroll. The scrolls were 32 feet long, and this is where the narrator ran out of space and had to pick up a new scroll. And in fact, when we begin to read, we're, this chapter 1 of 2 Samuel is going to pick up right off of the events of chapter 31 with no time elapsed at all. 
If anything, if we're coming to the end of a section, it's at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Because the end of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel is a song that David sings, and that is the song that marks a pivot between the first act, the reign of Saul, and the second act, the reign of David. So this should not be seen as a new book. This should be the continuation of the same story in the same book. The author is just writing it in a second notebook, so to speak, because he ran out of space in the first one. 